Welcome to the Brilliant Minds podcast. Brilliant Minds is a two-day thought leadership summit where we gather the most innovative international luminaries, global decision makers, and young emerging talents of our time to discuss the future in the world's creative capital, Stockholm, Sweden. Created in 2015 by Ashpur Nori, founder of At Night Management, and Spotify's founder, Daniel Ek, Brilliant Minds and Symposium Stockholm provides a platform and week-long festival for creative individuals with powerful ideas to come together and interact with a global community of leaders at the intersection of arts and technology. The theme for this year's Brilliant Minds was collaborative creativity. The notion that great ideas and great business happens in between. In between tech and music, fashion and music, innovation and art, in between American and European cultures. In the marriage of the old and the new way of doing things, magic happens. My name is Natalia Brzezinski, and as the CEO of Brilliant Minds and Symposium Stockholm, I'm so happy to say that we're now sharing a lot of our content from the event via this podcast. What you're about to listen to are a few of the speakers that spoke at Brilliant Minds in June. through our social media feeds is always showing the best of our lives, the perfect sides, the perfect pictures. Perfect is a little bit too boring and fake for me sometimes. I think to really allow us to connect with everyone, wouldn't it be more honest to share things where we are more vulnerable, more authentic, and more true to ourselves? Can being impolite in the era of social media help us speak truth to power? That's the question that will be asked by our next speakers, Ruzwana Bashir and Ronan Farrow, two great friends and people that really personally inspire me. When Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, first met Ruzwana Bashir, he told her, Ruzwana, you really remind me of myself when I was younger. Ruzwana is a star and she is the co-founder and CEO at travel startup peak.com. Ronan Farrow is a journalist and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's first ambassador for youth. The Stonewall Community Foundation honored him with a Vision Award for his reporting on transgender issues. Each year, the organization honors the work of extraordinary individuals and groups that use their voice, position, or talent to improve and enrich the lives of the LGBTQ people. Both Ronan and Ruzwana really use their platforms for change, and the next talk is unbelievable. Enjoy, guys. Ooh, we got to follow vibrators. How do, how do we live up to that? 
So now that everyone's very uncomfortable, I think this is actually a great jumping off point. Uh, we have just been a little bit impolite. The question is, uh, is that the most meaningful and important way we can be impolite? Or is there a need for more of that? I mean, I think, I don't know about you, Roswana, for any of us who's fortunate enough to end up at an event this fancy, maybe several in our lifetime, you think about, are we just talking about these nice ideals we've heard about, right? I see a lot of very polished-looking people. I've had a lot of very polished conversations. We've heard a lot of buzzwords. But is there something more, and can we cut through all of that to something that is more real? Um, and I think that sometimes has to be impolite to break through that noise. Rizwana, when you look at your own life and, and the world and the society around you, what bothers you most about the noise that sometimes conceals the truth? Um, I think there are a few areas that I, I think it affects me. Um, as an entrepreneur, um, I have a company and about 80 people working for me in San Francisco. Um, one of the things that's frustrating often is that whenever you talk to an entrepreneur, they're always killing it. No matter what happens, it's always the case that everything's fantastic. And that's a really dangerous mentality because actually building startups is hard. Um, there are moments where it is really, you're struggling to make things work. Um, you know, you might have made some bad decisions that are leading to the company not succeeding. Frankly, you might not be able to make payroll. Um, you find entrepreneurs um, don't want to share. And as a result, everybody thinks that you know, the transition to building a successful company is like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. No, that is 0.1% of companies, if that, um, that have this um, incredible success. And so um, people don't understand that that's the way that it works. And so as a result, they can lack some of the grit and persistence that's necessary. The second thing that I see it in is, is just in social media at large, right? You know, I, I'm culpable uh, of this as much as everyone else. You Me know, too. Um, <laughs> How many people out there use Instagram filters? Come on. Show of hands. Um, the, right, we've all know, done it. Oh, come on, more of you than that. Yeah. You've like gotten the lighting right and stuff. Totally, like you know, you're you're at, you know in you're in Rio having breakfast and you're contorting yourself over to show a beautiful plate of fruit so you can share with people this fabulous. This is life. an actual thing she's yeah, done. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure. going to admit to it. Um, and so you know, you find yourself doing these silly things so that people can think you're having this awesome time, and you never, you know, that moment when you're eating pizza uh, and chocolate and not feeling great is never captured. And so there is this danger that our lives are heavily curated to look fabulous and amazing and all of our good times, which is nice because it's, it's great that people can share some of those moments. But the sad thing is that then people don't know about all these other hardships that we have. And that inauthenticity is hard. For sure. And look, this is a, a structural problem in the media, I think. I work in a very old school media setting, as you heard. I'm a, I'm a TV broadcaster in the States at a big, hulking old school network. We have problems in that kind of a setting talking about the voiceless and, and actually putting them on camera. I mean, you, you look at the transition that's happening in media right now, cheap partisan talk TV is dying. Cable news is dying in the United States. Um, actually, ironically, given that there's all this talk from executives at media companies that, you know, the, the short form content is triumphing, the tweet is triumphing, the stuff that's cutting through is vice investigative reports. It's long form New York Times reports that really dig into issues and uncover the truth. That cuts through the noise more often than not. Even in my own experiences, I've really seen how resistant the old school media can be to talking about some of these hard truths. And, and again, to giving voice to some of these people that are silenced in our society. You just heard about you know, some of the LGBT reporting that, that Natalia was mentioning. When I first pitched the idea of putting transgender guests on TV about three years ago, there were a lot of lovely people in my newsroom who were very progressive and who in the abstract supported LGBT rights, trans rights, but who said, 
you know, taking me aside privately, can we really put these people on our air? You know, isn't that a little niche? Um, isn't that a little impolite? It wasn't something that was done. And, and we forget that because we, we've been the beneficiary of, you know, wonderful, very, very public transgender celebrities now that have brought the issue front and center. But it's hard getting these things to cut through in some of these old school platforms. And when you look at the proliferation of blogs, of new media reporters, yes, with some downsides, yes, many of us in this room may take issue with some of the lines crossed by, say, a gawker, but those are also the outlets that you know, propelled the Bill Cosby story into the spotlight when no one else would. So I think there are some encouraging signs of change. Rizwana, you know, of course this is also a personal issue for both of us. In your own life, how have you been able to live out the ideal of cutting through the noise and taking a, a hard stand on a hard truth? Um, so for me personally, the kind of the biggest issue or the biggest area that I've spoken up about has been something that's personal to me. Um, when I was 10 years old, I was sexually abused by a neighbor. Um, and I grew up in a very conservative Pakistani background in the north of England. And it was one of these things that's incredibly shameful. To be perfectly honest, at the time, I didn't really understand it. But some years later, um, once I did, I knew that it was something I couldn't speak about. I was fortunate in the sense that I was able to um, leave the community and end up going to Oxford, um, you know, went and worked in these great financial institutions and moved to America to go to Harvard Business School. And here I was, this woman with this, all this opportunity, looking back at my community where most women didn't have a lot of opportunity. And frankly, I knew that there were kids who were probably being abused by the same person. And so I went back and I actually testified against my abuser who's now in prison. And that was it, and I did it privately. Didn't talk to anyone about it. Obviously, my community knew and were sadly not very supportive. And there was a huge you know, issue of shame around it. And then about two years ago, there was a lot of this coming up in the UK, um, huge issues of sexual abuse um, actually relating to the Pakistani community. But no Pakistani victims were coming forward. Um, and so I found myself in a position where I could write something and share my story and show that I wasn't ashamed. Because this is something that is considered really shameful, especially in those kind of cultures. And so I wrote a, an article for The Guardian that ended up being read by about a million people. Can we get a cheer for that? I mean, that's a brave stand to take. And that's important for victims struggling to come forward everywhere, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I have to admit it was the hardest thing I've ever done because I was wanting to be known for being an entrepreneur and, you know, doing sure. all these great things. And yet I felt this moral obligation to say something. And when I wrote the article, just hundreds of people reached out from across the world. People in Mexico, in Nigeria, in Japan, talking about these same issues, about a culture of shame um, around abuse and not being able to speak about it. And I found all these women that were incredibly successful. When I went to Fortune's Most Powerful Women, you know, the women that I was meeting there saying, this happened to me too but I couldn't say anything. And so I think that's been um, you know, something where I've recognized there's a pandemic and the only way that we can help combat these issues is by talking about them, by shining this bright light on these problems and saying, A, it's not okay, and B, that you can survive and hopefully have good, fulfilling lives um, despite some of these things. You know, we look at the American media right now, huge story at this very moment is a sexual assault that happened at Stanford University in the United States where a young man who was convicted, found guilty of raping a young woman behind a dumpster while she was unconscious, was sentenced to only six months in prison. And this has really exploded into a national debate with victims of all kinds everywhere, but especially women everywhere who have gone through this or seen this in their families, saying that's not right. But also with an old guard of people who defend the privilege. This young man, you know, 
His lawyers asserted he was a great competitive swimmer. He came from a nice family. Um, people who support the privileged when the vulnerable go up against them in our society often end up shaming the victim. You talked about the shame in your community and how that makes it so much harder to come forward. That, that's deeply personal to me because my sister was also sexually assaulted when she was seven years old. And in our case, it's a particularly acute example of the victim shaming that can happen because she went up against a very powerful director, our father, Woody Allen, who you actually just saw in a clip there. And they were all, you know, on the stage laughing at him because our society, you know, there are all these guys out there. There's Bill Cosby, there's Roman Polanski, there are a lot of powerful men in Hollywood and across many industries who are able to use their power to escape justice for a long time, in some cases forever. Um, my father was never convicted. That made it incredibly painful when my sister decided to come forward as an adult, as a 30-year-old woman two years ago, and say, this happened to me, and victims everywhere need to know it, um, because we can't have a culture that just apologizes for the perpetrators and shames the victim. And I myself avoided this issue for so long, so I understand the culture of shame. All I wanted, like you were talking about, Rizwana, is to be known for my own work and the things I care about. And the last thing you want is a painful, personal moment overshadowing everything. Hence the temptation to be polite and just shut up for victims and for people around them. I mean, it took me years to finally come to a point, as I did in this last week or two, um, where I, I wrote an article for The Hollywood Reporter saying, I believe my sister, both because I love her and because there's a staggering amount of evidence for her case, um, and it's wrong that the press avoids asking questions about it. Uh, there are some good lessons to learn from this. The Hollywood Reporter approached me because they wrote a profile of this man that didn't ask questions about that allegation. And they said after they got attacked for that, because things are changing, the conversation's different now, okay, we want pushback. We want to seek a voice that will say reporters need to ask hard questions. But there's still a long way to go, and she still gets attacked all the time. I see it every day. There's the same kind of victim shaming, slut shaming, culture of shame. And the more powerful the person you're going up against, the harder it is. Do you see signs of change for the better, Rizwana? And what do you think still needs to change most in terms of our willingness to confront these hard truths? I mean, I think we're talking about issues that are really quite stark and, and, and hard. Um, I think there's lots of ways in which, you know, and in, th in this situation is around abuse of any kind, whether it's domestic abuse, sexual abuse, being able to talk about it and be transparent about it, telling people stories, because I think a lot of the fear around these issues is, well, I'm different and I'm bad if something happened. And I think the more that we can say, no, look, lots of people have these terrible things that happen, let's make sure that A, you realize that the victims aren't to blame, but B, that there are ways that as a society we can move to change them. But then there's lots of other things that are happening that I think are interesting that are just generally getting rid of this hero myth. So we've lived in a world where, um, you know, for hundreds of years, we've kind of worshipped at this idea of people being perfect, right? Um, we've put people up um, to admire. And now we're beginning with the advent of the smartphone and other things, we're beginning to see that there are all these moments. There's no hiding. We've all got those pictures out there. We don't want to be out there. Totally. And, and so it does mean that there's nothing you can really hide. Every skeleton in your closet, everything you don't want people to know about is there. And so I think that gives us an age where this ideal of perfection could hopefully go away because we know that everybody is imperfect. There are lots of things. Even, you know, the, there are people that we kind of, you know, put up there, someone like Steve Jobs who you know, was incredible, a genius in so many ways, but did have these other aspects of his personality that perhaps weren't as great. And I think being able to have this dual aspect of us being 
able to do incredible things in many ways, but also having some flaws and some defects that make us human is really important. And I, I hope that that's really what we'll begin to see more of is, is just an opportunity to be more transparent. Well, the good news is we see an appetite for it, right? At, and right here in this room, I'm happy to say thank you guys. It's, you know, even if you look at American politics right now, I'm sure a lot of you guys are following this election, we're seeing a real sea change in a lot of these conversations. I mean, in, in the Democratic Party in the United States, we see these deep generational fault lines where, to varying extents, but pretty much across the board, Democrats under 30 are rallying behind Bernie Sanders, this iconoclastic kind of, you know, by his own uh, uh, formation, a, a truth teller. You know, you can disagree or, or agree with that, but someone who is blunt, um, someone who tries to cut through the noise. Uh, and on the other side of the, the party lines, you know, we see Donald Trump, who's like, you know, before a star dies, it goes supernova. Trump is like the supernova of an old school kind of politics, for, for better or maybe for worse. But certainly it illustrates a hunger for something different, something more raw, something less filtered. And I hope that can be a good thing. And, and look, hearing those cheers and looking out across this room, I hope that a lot of the people that are so well positioned to change conversations in different industries can be behind that change. Absolutely. We're hoping you guys can take this and be more real in all of your lives now. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Rizwana. Thank you, Rizwana. Bravo for all you've done. <laughs>